Hey everyone, this is James Lindsay. You're listening to another exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast. I think this will be a shorter episode. I just want to do something kind of simple. I want to talk about the anatomy of a critical theory. So a couple of years ago, it turns out at the very beginning of 2019, so I guess two and a half years ago, I got invited to review a book that was about critical dietetics and critical nutrition studies. Now, dietetics is the study of diet, kind of like nutrition. So it's it's not the other thing, Dianetics, which is Scientology. It is the study of diet. So it's related to nutrition. And so I got to ask to, to read this book and to review it. And I thought, I don't know anything really. I mean, I try to eat right or whatever, but I don't know anything about dietitian work or dietetics. I don't know anything about nutrition studies. I'm definitely not a nutritionist or an expert in any of this. Why on earth am I being asked to review this? And of course, what I pointed out in my eventual review that I wrote, which by the way, I think has been taken off the internet. I tried to find it earlier and I couldn't find it except in my email where I had actually exchanged it. So maybe it's been taken down. Um, but I tried to, I, I pointed out that it's the word critical in that review that invited me to write the review of the book. So I read this book and it's insane. And, you know, I wrote kind of this tongue in cheek or semi tongue in cheek. I don't know how to describe it. Um, review where I recommend the book, even though it's obviously horrible because I say that it lays the ideology of critical theory bare and it shows what it looks like when it colonizes another, um, field of study or institution or whatever. And the reason I bring that up today, despite not wanting to talk about critical dietetics and nutrition studies at all, is because that book really became the first place, the first time. So by about two years ago, I realized that it's actually possible, literally possible to make a critical theory of anything. And that's actually a big deal because all you have to do is take any existing critical theory and then transpose out the relevant domain-specific terminology of critical theory A and stick in the domain-specific terminology of some other field and you have a new critical theory B of that other thing, which shows that it's a complete intellectual swindle. It's a complete pile of garbage. What it is is it's a sophisticated way of using academic language to complain in order to achieve a political agenda against something that you're mad at. That's all it boils down to. And so fast forward to last year, and I've told this story, I think I told this story on Joe Rogan's podcast that I did last summer. I was out for a walk with my wife and I suddenly had the realization of how systemic thinking works. And I wrote an essay on new discourses after I went on Joe Rogan that said nobody is systemically racist or something like that, or why nobody is systemically racist. And I explained that the systemic thinking itself is a steaming pile of garbage. It's a terrible way to analyze. In other words, it's a very sophisticated way to complain about something you're mad at and want to tear down and destroy. Systemic thinking is not a good way to do almost any analysis. Now, Last night on Twitter, at the time of this recording, I did a thread about this, and a lot of people have come into the defense of, of systemic thinking. We have to think in terms of systems, and I'm not convinced. Um, as a matter of fact, 
Well, I think there is sometimes something to the systems theory. It's mostly a way to, for people to camouflage bad thinking, lazy activity, and, import, and to import critical theories in stupid ways. And so what I want to do is give the anatomy of a critical theory, not so much by breaking it down just explicitly in the abstract, which we might get to, but by I'm going to read through this thread that I did last night, which is like critical car theory. You guys have all seen how I did critical clown theory, which is like turning their game back on them. You will remember from last fall where I did critical election theory, where I just did the same thing with the election results, claiming that if you didn't believe in election fraud, uh, then you were part of a systemic election fraud cabal or social contract or whatever you want to have. It's so easy to do this. You can see very quickly how garbage this is, but it's also very insightful to understand how the Marxian line of thought, which is when you start taking systems and then apply critical theory thinking to systemic thinking, it's so easy to see how it can be applied to anything and how it's just damaging and how it's, you know, basically the the kind of rent-seeking behavior of low-talent fools who can't succeed on their merits or don't have good or original ideas but want to sound smart, want to sound like they're contributing, want to sound like they're identifying problems. And so, you know, to start with a little bit of the abstract before I read the thread, that's where it all begins. The anatomy of a critical theory begins by thinking in terms of systems anywhere you can identify a problem that you want to make politically actionable. So you, that's the abstract expression. So you're going to find some problem that you want to make politically actionable, and you're going to use systemic thinking. You're going to talk about power structures or superstructures or systems of power or systems of uh, activity in order to make it so that, in a sense, everybody can be blamed for whatever the problem is. So everybody has to get involved in making a change to overcome the problem. So the example I gave on Rogan's a little different than what I did on the thread. The example that's in my essay I wrote in New Discourses last year mirrors what I did on Rogan. So it's a little different than what I did on the thread. I just simplified it after literally I went to pick up some food yesterday and I was driving home and I saw a kid waiting to cross the street at a crosswalk. Um, and turns out because it was like right after school, traffic was, was crazy. And so what I wrote, here's the thread. You're driving. You stop to let someone cross on a crosswalk and they do without looking. A car coming the other direction does not stop and hits the person. Who is at fault? And then I said, if we think systemically, everyone but the pedestrian, everyone, everyone who drives, sells cars, and so on. In fact, it would be everybody who's in, invested in the system. I didn't say this on Twitter. I've now riffing. That's the first tweet in my thread. I'm not going to read straight through. I, you know how I like to comment. It's everybody who's involved in the system that enables cars to be on the road. Now, if you don't like the idea of the crosswalk and the person crossing the crosswalk, I think most of you who drive will have had the experience where you're trying, you're on like a four lane, right? But not like a highway. And you stop to let somebody pull out. And this is a massively dangerous maneuver. Like somebody's trying to turn out of a parking lot. It's very difficult to turn there. So you courteously stop so that they can pull out in front of you to turn. There's an intersection near where I live that this happens all the time. And the problem is, is they see you stop and they start going. But the thing is, is the next lane next to you, there's no guarantee that that person stops. And in fact, a lot of times they don't. And a lot of accidents happen this way because they see the courteous action of somebody stopping to let them out. 
and they start to go without sufficiently looking. So it could be cars and cars and cars instead of a pedestrian. It doesn't matter. Somebody tried to nitpick me about the pedestrian always having the right of way, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's true in some states, but I don't know if it's even true in all states. Um, in the U.S., I don't know what the rules are in different countries. All I know is that you don't have to rely on that stupid detail if that's the thing you want to nitpick. Um, the point is that everybody involved in the economy of cars, if it was a racism we were talking about instead of cars, we would say everybody involved in the economy of racial difference. If it was um, sexism, we would say everybody involved in the economy of sexual difference. That's a feminist thing. Economy of difference, economy of difference. Here, everybody involved in the economy of cars, whether it's producing them, consuming them, making a business reliant upon them, etc., is going to be complicit. And if you think that this is an exaggeration, remember, there is a book that is of some significant influence from 2010 that I've cited many times called Being White, Being Good by Barbara Applebaum. It is about, if I remember the subtitle off the top of my head correctly, it is white complicity, white moral responsibility, and uh, social justice pedagogy. So the point of this book, which is then framed in the sense of education, is that all white people are complicit in systemic racism. And she says repeatedly in that book, all white people are complicit. All white people are racist. She says it explicitly in the book over and over and over again, in case you wonder. This is tucked within the education branch of critical whiteness studies, which is a subdivision, whether they like it or not, of critical race theory. So they do think this way. Everybody involved in the economy of racial difference who benefits from it in some way or another is complicit. So when we say that if you think if we think systemically, this is back to my tweet, everyone but the pedestrian is at fault. Everyone. Everyone who drives, sells cars, is involved in the production of cars, is involved in running a business dependent upon cars, anything that, that supports a society that operates with cars. And this is actually a little bit real, by the way. There are lots of cities trying to ban cars. There are movements that have tried to ban cars making these arguments. So this is the anatomy of a systemic critical theory, in other words, a Marxian theory, which thinks about the systems, whether it's the class system, whether it's the race system they believe operates, whether it's Marxist feminism that believes there's a, a patriarchy that's patriarchal capitalist, whether it's other feminism, whatever, this is the idea behind systemic thinking. So what I went on to tweet was, we have a system that leads people to drive cars, to need to drive cars, to be unable to solve their problems without driving cars, in which people profit from selling cars, making cars, putting fuel in cars, extracting, refining the fuel, the metal, the rubber, etc., to make cars. So now you start to see who all is complicit in the production of the cars. And remember, we're just saying who is at fault for the fact that a pedestrian got hit by a car, or we could say that it's for the 30-some-odd thousand traffic deaths that occur every year and the untold numbers of injuries and economic damage. Or we could say that it's, we could look at it in terms of a racial lens or a sexual lens. I think I get to that later in the thread, so I won't get into it. But now everybody who's involved in selling cars, making cars, putting fuel in cars, and so all your gas station attendants, all the gas stations themselves, everybody's ever used a gas station and have contributed to the existence of gas stations with their, the money they gave them. You could even go as far if you really wanted to get wacky by saying that the capitalist system that relies on money at all would, would create this thing and you wouldn't need it otherwise if we were in a perfect communist system. So everybody involved in money, you can take it as far out as you want. Everybody involved in extracting and refining the materials to make cars or roads or the materials that make 
pieces of cars or the people who feel like cars make their lives more free or better or whatever it happens to be. They are all part of this system that leads people to drive cars, to need to drive cars, to be unable to solve their problems without driving cars. That's what I've said. This is systemic thinking. All of those people I put on Twitter, everyone who supports an economy of cars is complicit in this system. And every traffic, death, injury, or inconvenience, not to mention the different impacts on people because not everyone has cars or equally good cars, these are all systemic harms based on cars. And these people are all complicit in those systemic harms. All the traffic deaths, all the injuries, all the inconvenience, all the expense, all the wasted money on insurance, all of the uh, lack of better systems like rails, all of the poor, poor efficiency of land use, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we could do this forever to think of every freaking possible problem that exists because of an economy of cars. And everybody who participates in this, everybody who wants to have their house further apart or live out in the suburbs or whatever it happens to be, that's real, by the way. The live out in the suburbs thing is real. They're all contributing. We could throw go into the whole climate change thing. I said traffic, death, injury, or inconvenience, all the pollution, all the externalities, all the blah, 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 some hurricane, all because we have a system of cars and everybody who benefits in the economy of cars, everybody who benefits from that is complicit in maintaining that system. They are all guilty and include included in that they're all bearing some moral complicity for the kid who got hit, or it's, maybe it's an adult, I didn't specify on Twitter, at that crosswalk because one person stopped and the other person didn't. This whole system, I said, and all its beneficiaries are therefore complicit in car culture which kills tens of thousands per year. I didn't go into the pollution, etc. They have car complicity, I said, which they rationalize as normal and justified because it benefits them. Their car driving life is comfortable for them. Now, if you don't know what I'm doing here, I'm literally directly mirroring the rhetoric in, say, Being White, Being Good, or in Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, in other books or in other books within critical whiteness studies where they talk about the role that white comfort, white equilibrium, etc. play for maintaining whiteness. You could do the same thing in Marxist analysis where they're talking about being, you know, bourgeois values and having this kind of upper middle class comfortable life. Or if we're getting to the neo-Marxists, even just a regular middle class life, it's comfortable for you. You you, you, Herbert Marcuse argues repeatedly in his essays through the 1960s that people are unable to be aware of their servitude and misery because they're comfortable and happy, or they think they're comfortable and they think they're happy, and they don't want their comfort disrupted. So car driving life is comfortable for people, and obviously that what I'm doing is mirroring neo-Marxist and woke and Marxist language about how systems work to create in people a false consciousness where they're going to want to maintain the oppressive and damaging system for their own benefit, even though it's oppressive and damaging, whether it's causing pollution and climate change or some other global problem that needs a giant response where we all have to do our part, whether it's leading to you know, tens of thousands of unnecessary injuries and deaths, blah, blah, blah. And I say not only 
people who drive cars, but people who depend on and benefit from an economic system enabled by and supplied by cars and trucks, people who lay roads, people who develop components to put into cars, or an an economy reliant on them are all complicit, and because they benefit from it, willfully ignorant of their complicity. This is exactly the argument that critical whiteness studies makes about whiteness. This is exactly the argument that Herbert Marcuse makes about capitalist consumer culture. This is exactly the argument that the Marxists made about bourgeois values maintaining Marxism. Or sorry, maintaining capitalism against Marxism. And so that's as far as I went with the thread. I added a little bit more later, but then I was going to just wrap it up there. I didn't want to beat a dead horse. I said, this is how systemic thinking works. This is a Marxian theory of cars. This is critical car theory. And I said, it's ridiculous bullshit because it is. And then I said, now go back to the top and make it about a teenager who dies of myocarditis after getting a COVID vaccine. Fun. Why? Because you could. They won't, obviously, because it's a leftist agenda to create these vaccines, passports or whatever they're trying to do with it. But you could create a critical COVID vaccine theory that would be a satirical ha-ha against them, I guess, because they'll never do it. But if they decided, if it were like Trump's vaccines or whatever, and they were really serious about that, they would create a critical vaccine study or theory that's exactly the same thing. Everybody who's involved in the perpetuation, blah, 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 the whole argument makes makes all over again. And all those harms and everything are the things that people don't care about. So... Um, we could do it again. Everybody, it's not everybody, but a ton of people have pointed out to me that the exact same argument is made about guns. Look at the kids who get killed. Look at the gangbangers who are shooting each other. Look at all the gun deaths. Look at all the gun crime. Look at all this. Well, if we just didn't have guns, we have a systemic problem, a culture of a gun culture, and everybody who supports gun culture is complicit in all the deaths. They're all, they have blood on their hands, blah, blah, blah. You hear the exact same thing. So a critical gun theory is very easy to make. It follows exactly this mold. You pick any problem that you want to make politically actionable. You find some harms about it, and then you rope everybody in to say everybody's complicit. This is why there's the responsible gun owner thing when it gets to the gun thing, because responsible gun owners are trying to point out that most gun owners, and they're correct, and I think they've proven it after the last year especially, are not actually complicit in the fact that people do crime with guns or that accidents happen with guns, etc. That complicity, that group-based complicity is not a good way to think about things. I'm not against the idea of complicity overall, obviously. Like, if I decide to drive somebody to go commit a crime I'm and I don't participate in the crime, I just take them there knowing what I'm doing, I feel like I'm complicit. Now, if I'm an Uber driver and I drive somebody and they happen to commit a crime, I'm not complicit. I didn't know what they were doing. I just took them where they wanted to go, right? So complicity here really should include intention. And if you actually read the book, Being White, Being Good by Barbara Applebaum, she's extraordinarily clear. I could pull it up, I think, and show you that intention is not the right way to think about it. We need a much broader conception. She says, in fact, the idea that considering all Germans complicit in the Nazis doesn't go far enough to capture what's going on with whiteness because it doesn't get into the aspect of of moral complicity that you're benefiting from that system. So I said on Twitter, this is how easy it is to make up a critical theory. We could have an entire journal of academic papers taking this to absurd depths within a few months if we wanted to. It's that easy. Now I can pull back to my 
critical dietetics and nutrition studies thing now because that's exactly what they document in that book that they did. They said that they were writing these critical nutrition papers, they were sending them to nutrition journals, and they were being told by professionals that these aren't nutrition papers, they're not publishable. So they went off and created their own academic journals. And so now you can see how the so-called idea laundering process, that's what Brett Weinstein called it, talking to us in 2018 before the Grievance Studies Affair came out. You can see how this idea laundering process works. They have their stupid complaints. The field itself recognizes that it's not real. This systemic thinking, this Marxian theory is garbage, that it's being done by no-talent hacks who don't have original ideas, who can't compete, who aren't doing something valuable, who often have a grudge. In that book, they talk about how they often have a grudge. They talk about how they tried to run their nutrition business, and they tried to make it like holistic, and they tried to include this, they tried to include that, some stuff that the market didn't want to bear, and their business failed. And so it wasn't their fault. It was the system fault. It was that nutrition studies and dietetics themselves are too, they literally say this, too scientific and exclude other approaches. So then the public won't, because the authority of dietitians and nutritionists extends into the public, the public won't respect other approaches. And it's the, it's the fault of the dietitians and the nutritionists that their stupid business didn't work. And do you see, this is the anatomy of a critical theory. This is what I said. This is the anatomy of a critical theory, is that you are blaming, you're finding this particular way that's easily reproducible by people who have a little bit of rhetorical skill, but more importantly, who can memorize and use big words approximately correctly, who have some kind of a grudge, who want to blame their failures, not just on somebody else, but on everybody else in a vague sense, on everybody else. And systemic thinking is the way you get to blaming everybody else. Now, I said we could have, we could have a whole journal of so-called, I put it in scare quotes, academic papers taking this whole critical car theory to absurd depths. We could have that within a few months. Why? Because it's super easy to write these papers, just like it was super easy to write this thread. All you would have to do is pick any aspect of anything that can be tangentially tied to cars in any way whatsoever. Talk about how the culture that is exists around that thing is tied into the car driving culture and the car driving culture creates all these problems. So therefore it upholds it. That's literally it. You could talk about rock quarries to get rocks and how getting to build roads. That's a thing. You could talk about the way that people have to, you know, get exploited for their labor to lay roads and tie it into capitalism. You Anything that you could possibly imagine. You could blame neoliberal Western imperialism for trying to secure Southeast Asia from against Chinese power or whatever to secure their access to rubber. You could say that was the point of the Vietnam War. And you could tie in all these kind of weird threads that are all like not that tight to just keep doing this. And you could... Anything you can imagine that has anything to do with cars, all you have to do is try to twist around to figure out how you can turn it into everybody is at fault for the bad thing. Everybody is at fault for the bad thing. You could very easily get into the idea that some people have Lamborghinis and other people have Porsches and other people have to drive like a Toyota or something or even used cars only or, you know, cars that don't work. And there's an entire... 
you know, subclass of people who can only kind of afford broken down cars because blah, 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 car culture and capitalism. It's so easy to do this. And whose fault is it? It's everybody's. Why is it everybody's fault? Because if we change everybody, if we change and overthrow the whole system, then we get away from all those problems. And what you see then is a complete refusal to understand trade-offs. The complete refusal to understand that there are for the costs that come with driving cars, whether that's pollution, whether that's um, injuries and deaths to a certain degree, there are also massive benefits. And of course, they're just going to frame the benefits out in terms of something that's either insidious, like a, they're going to say, oh, it gives people more freedom, but they use that freedom to do terrible things and to not care and da da da. Or in terms of economics, which they're going to tie back to capitalism as like the er evil of the world that has to be destroyed. And this is how they all work. And you literally, we literally could have an academic journal with 50 to 100 papers a year on critical car theory put together by the end, like now, literally, it'd be that easy to make. Fill this thing with stupid papers that argue these stupid things that are actually, they could be peer-reviewed, the whole thing, a critical theory of cars. And with like the critical dietitian and critical uh, nutrition studies stuff, about three years in, they can get a library to take it seriously. And once one university library takes it seriously and buys access to the journal, they can then link it to a real journal publisher that wants to make a profit off of this and doesn't care. And then all the libraries start buying it. The libraries don't care. They're just burning through money that's like whatever. And then all of a sudden you have an academic discipline that's made out of nothing. That's made out of complaining and blaming everybody for some problem that avoids in any regard whatsoever anybody ever taking responsibility for anything. And I'm telling you, you can do this with literally anything. I did it with cars. I've done it with clowns. I've done it with election theory. They did it with whiteness. They've done it with feminism. They've done it with anything you can imagine that has a politically actionable use. What's a politically actionable use of cars? Well, you want to get a car-free world. You want to concentrate people into cities. You want to give them some kind of a totally different life. You want to stop climate change. There are all kinds of politically actionable maneuvers that they can use for their stupid agenda. And then they can create a critical car theory that's designed to complain about it in a targeted way that's going to try to achieve that goal. That's all Marxian theory is. That's all it does. Ruthless criticism of everything that exists in order to awaken the revolution. That's Marx's idea. So what I said to kind of wrap this thread up was papers could include how systemic car normativity, that's what I decided to call um, a, a culture of cars, that where it's normal that we drive cars, it's expected that freedom is tied to it, blah, blah, blah. Papers could include how systemic car normativity is entwined with capitalism, racism, sexism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's a racial disparity in who gets to drive the cool cars and then who has the expensive cars and who has to drive junkers or who can't get a car or who's excluded and has to ride the bus public transportation blah 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 if we all just rode public transportation it would be different we could dig into the various aspects i said of how neoliberalism depends on car-based economies neoliberalism is kind of them but it's like their big uh enemy and they actually have some pretty good um, critiques of neoliberalism, I think it's because wokeness is, as the Iron Law of Woke Projection suggests, a uh, self-loathing and projecting onto your political enemies the things they hate about themselves. But they always complain about neoliberalism and capitalism. So they could dig into various aspects of neoliberalism and or capitalism, depend on car-based economies, but that there are other alternatives that we could reimagine 
we could reimagine the economy in a different way. And that if we all actually had UBI or whatever, if we actually had a redistribution of wealth that was fair and equitable, we wouldn't even need cars. We could all work from home because, of course, the goal with them is to create a permanent creative class, which is what they're able to leech off of. They don't do anything productive. You don't see them digging a hole anywhere. You don't see them producing, building a single damn thing. They're not building any buildings. They're not laying a road. They want to be part of the creative class because they feel like that's where they belong. And in their creative class, they want to do something they're actually not very good at. So then they blame the system that they're not good enough when other people are better. I said they could do so many absolutely nonsensical things that intellectuals love. And that's how it gets through the door. Intellectuals will then read this. If you remember my other podcasts, I think it was in James Lindsay Only Subs where I was talking about good liberals. Maybe I did it as new discourses in the way that good liberals pro- project or protect and, and, and entrench these stupid critical theories is they read this stuff and they're like, hmm, very smart, very analysis. Oh, yes, systems. We must think in terms of complicated systems. They do have a point after all. Hmm, it's very useful. I had so many replies on Twitter to this stupid thread that were of that nature that were like, oh, there's really no systemic thinking is actually usually very important. No, it's not. We started with, we come to a crosswalk. One car stops, one car doesn't. And somebody didn't look. And we're trying to figure out where moral blame goes. And it turns into the whole freaking system, the entire economy, the entire social order, and the way that we think about things and operate needs to be completely revamped because those kinds of accidents sometimes happen. And we have to, where is the blame? Well, we don't want to blame the pedestrian who didn't look, we don't want to blame, we could blame directly the person who uh, actually struck the pedestrian in this thought experiment. But if we blame that person, we would just say that that depends on who they are. We could say that they're a victim of, you know, they've internalized car normativity. They thought that it would be normal to do this, blah, blah, blah. It, it was just an accident, they would say. They would have all these apologetic explanations. Oh, it's just an accident. That's one of the ways that car normativity rationalizes. And I said, um, The conclusion, then, of critical car theory is, well, we have a need for self-driving cars and a car-free, primitive, or hyper-urban society that's somehow not primitive. Uh, We need government programs to make owning and operating a car very expensive so we can abolish cars or whatever. Whatever leftist Marxian political football can be tied to car driving, that's the conclusion of critical car theory. That's the point of a Marxian theory. That's all these people are doing. And they're tricking people over and over and over again, whether it's racism or sexism or whatever, because those have emotional valences. So when you pull it back to cars, it's easy to see how ridiculous it is. And I said, and if you disagree, you just want people to die in traffic accidents. There's your moral authority draining attempt. So you're now complicit in mass vehicular homicide and manslaughter. That's where they use hyperbolic language to tie you into things that you aren't complicit in. Like when Barbara Applebaum says that, you know, if there is such a thing of any degree of white privilege and you benefit from it, then you're complicit in a in, in white supremacy, which is pretty extreme. Which is also being tied in right now with what's going on at like the Pentagon to say that every normal American who is not on board with woke garbage might be a white supremacist and therefore a possible domestic terrorist that might need to be investigated by the three-letter agencies or looked at by the eventually by the military. Pretty scary. This is how they do, though, and all it is is a power grab. 
So if you disagree, you must just want people to die in traffic accidents or you want pollution or whatever. And I said, and to refuse to admit your complicity in the system because you want to maintain your own benefit and comfort because you lack moral humility and stamina. And that is a direct paraphrasing of Robin D'Angelo saying that people that don't want to become anti-racists on her ridiculous, demanding, cult-like terms lack racial stamina can't endure racial stress. They lack racial humility. It's exactly that. It's all I'm doing is echoing their own words about whiteness and putting it into car system, car normativity, which is made up. Now, I said we could do this with anything, and I brought up guns, and I mentioned the clowns, and the other thing. But the, the fact is, the original formulation I did with this on Rogan, and then that I did in my uh, essay on new discourses, I actually said that the way I made it even more obviously accidental. Okay. So in that construction, the way I framed it out was that because I was envisioning, I was walking with my wife and I saw, a, I literally, I saw a bottle laying on, you know, the edge of the sidewalk or whatever. And I thought like a beer bottle or something. And I thought, okay, Imagine I trip over this bottle and I bump into my wife and I knock her into the street and a car is speeding along at just the wrong instant and that car happens to hit her. Who's at fault? And then I can you can get all complicated beyond that and say, well, the person was speeding because they were late to have to do some task or whatever, go to the doctor. We could make it. I think I made it being going to the doctor and they were speeding because they were late for their appointment. And once I did that, now look, now you've got the critical car theory with car normativity that you can implicate the entire system of cars. You can now do the entire system of, uh, alcohol because how else would that beer bottle have got there for me to trip over that beer bottle wouldn't have been there if it weren't for a culture that allows people or wants people to buy beer and drink beer or drink liquor or whatever. And I, I think I hypothesize that maybe it had been thrown out the window by somebody who was drinking while they were driving to tie the alcohol and the car cultures together. But then the person speeding, where they're speeding to get to something. So I said, maybe it's they're going to the doctor. So now all of a sudden the entire medical profession and the fact that it's so difficult to get a medical appointment and it can be so challenging to get in on time that the entire medical establishment. So now we've got three entire industries tied up together that are all part of this huge web of intersecting systems, the alcohol industry, the car industry, the medical industry, and all of them, how they're ultimately tied into capitalism and that they reproduce all these systems of power and everybody involved in the maintenance of any or all of them is multiply complicit and has to constantly engage their positionality against these intersecting systems of power and dominance that lead to these bad results. This is all they're doing. It's so ridiculous. It ignores that there are trade-offs, like that benefits are occurring by having cars or medicine or alcohol. That capitalist economies are actually positive sum games. They actually do raise all ships. There are different ways about to, to go about that, but that's because of the law of comparative advantage, which is actually true. It's a basic economic law. It says that if I'm better at X and you're better at Y and we team up and trade accordingly where I do mostly X and you do mostly Y and we trade our X's and our Y's in some fair exchange, that we actually come out with a positive sum result. We come out with more than we would have if I had to do my share of X and Y and you had to do your share of X and Y. If we actually specialize and then and trade, we actually end up in a positive sum situation. Both of us come out better. 
it misunderstands the idea of trade-offs and misunderstands the idea of accidents. This is an effect, and I don't want to get too philosophical about this, but this is an effect where you have Heidegger, of all people, to bring up. Where you have Heidegger talking about the flungness of life, of being, a flungness. You're being flung into to the world, and the world is not perfect. But if we just were to all get together and make it perfect, then the world would be perfect. We're flung into this miserable existence where things aren't perfect. And rather than figuring out some way to have a reasonable explanation for the evils and shortcomings of the world, we decide that we and our arrogance can just figure out how to blame everybody and force them all to be aware of their problematicness and change the whole system to something that literally every single time it's been tried, it just killed tens of thousands or tens of millions of people utter catastrophe with the hubristic belief that it'll work this time. So this is how you construct a critical theory of anything. Now, the one thing that I left out here, you know, I said this part with the uh, Robin D'Angelo, you know, you lack the, the, the moral humility and moral stamina to challenge your own benefit and uh, and comfort or even to recognize it. And that taps into obviously the last piece in the anatomy of a critical theory, which is to, to forbid questions essentially by branding as fragile or stupid or morally deficient anybody who disagrees. That's it. So people actually, I did this on Twitter, people actually, you know, were saying this is a stupid example, and I just said, this is car fragility. You disagreed with my critical theory of cars, it's car fragility. You want to maintain your benefit. You don't have the moral humility and moral stamina to endure the, to, to endure the stress of having to challenge your own way of life. Stupid example. Yeah, car fragility. So what you do is you forbid questions. That's why it's an intellectual swindle. And Robin D'Angelo does that explicitly with white fragility. Allison Bailey does it with the idea of privilege-preserving epistemic pushback, where if you disagree with social justice nonsense or neo-Marxism, you're actually not doing so for any legitimate reason. You're only doing so to preserve your access to privilege. Barbara Applebaum goes on and on about this in her book about white complicity. It's all over the place. Willful ignorance, active ignorance, pernicious ignorance, internalized dominance, internalized oppression, internalized racism, internalized transphobia, internalized this, internalized that, false consciousness, acting white, model minority. The whole theory is rife with reasons that anybody who disagrees with it must be insincere, selfish, or wrapped up somehow in the system of power and wanting to maintain it, therefore increasing their complicity. So Kafka trap always emerges because, as it's called, because when you profess your innocence of the accusation, that's taken as proof of your guilt of the accusation. That's the definition of a Kafka trap. So, you know, I'm not a racist. Oh, that's what a racist would say. You're just exhibiting white fragility. You're just pushing back to maintain your privilege. You're willfully ignorant. In fact, you're actively ignorant and perniciously ignorant because it causes harm for you to maintain this ignorance. But if I happen to be, say, black, I was just doing that so I could maintain my ability to act white. I'm not politically black. I'm only racially black. Therefore, I'm a race traitor. You can see, do you see how it works? So that's the last piece in the anatomy of a critical theory. Everybody who criticizes you is somehow deficient, whether it's morally or whether it's epistemically. You don't understand systems. You don't under, I got that on this thread. You don't understand how important it is to think in terms of systems. People said immediately, wow, this is kind of right. It's kind of true though. Um, 
I can't find one very quickly. Uh, but people definitely said that. This is kind of true. This kind of touches on a point. You just aren't sophisticated enough to understand it because you don't think in terms of Marxian systems. And so this is the anatomy of a critical theory, right? You find a problem that has a politically actionable conclusion if you think through it, usually for a leftist and Marxist agenda. It might be a fascist agenda because it's basically the same thing. Two sides of the same coin there. You find a problem that has a politically actionable conclusion. You wrap as many people into complicity in that as you can. You morally and uh, intellectually browbeat them into accepting your stupid systemic thinking, whether it's the moral system of their badness for being involved in it or supporting it or not fighting it, actually. There is no such thing as not racist. There's only racist and anti-racist. You browbeat them intellectually for not understanding the systemic nature of the problem. You browbeat them morally for thinking they're making them feel like they're a bad person for maintaining the problem, which causes all these harms. We hear about harm and trauma all the time, the problems, the problematics. You ignore the fact that there are trade-offs. You ignore the fact, for example, with cars that the boost in freedom, the boost in economic activity, etc., are well worth some of the cost. And of course, we want to still minimize those costs. And we take steps like seatbelt laws, like designing cars that have a higher safety record, like caring about the safety record of a car. One of the biggest selling points of Tesla's wasn't that they were electric. It was that they had a above a five-star safety rating. They have this. They were so safe that they beat the safety rating. Like the safety rating couldn't rate how safe they were. They were safer than the safest thing. The safety rating could. People care about that. We want to minimize those things. Everybody wants to minimize those things. So you take this thing that everybody's already doing and then pretend nobody's doing it. And that's why you're all bad. And then in the end, you tie it to some political football that you want to move for some agenda. You constantly push and twist the ratchet in that direction. And you call anybody who doesn't go along with you stupid or evil. You tell them that they don't have the intellectual or moral capacity to understand the more rarefied thing. And you think, well, that's just like stupid Robin D'Angelo. No. What do you think Herbert Marcuse's one-dimensional man was about in 1964? What do you think it was about? What do you think Max Horkheimer's point was when he wrote Traditional and Critical Theory in 1937? One-dimensional man said that the capitalist consumer society makes people one-dimensional if they had a critical second dimension to their thought. If they thought in a second dimension, they didn't just think inside the system, but they created a critical theory-based second dimension of thought. They'd be more sophisticated and they would want liberation. They would have a whole different way of thinking about the world. Same thing. Horkheimer. Well, traditional theories are great for understanding the world, but they can't tell you what you should do with it. They can't connect the is to the ought. We read that in, in Marcuse also. They can't connect the is to the ought. We can't get to what we should do without a critical theory, which is just their religious view of what we should do. And we can go back all the way back to um, Marx's idea of scientific socialism where he laid out the idea of the socialist man who knows with his socialist theory, his Wissenschaftlicher socialismus or whatever it is in German, scientific socialism, which is a higher level of science than just knowing things. You have to know things to know things. That's the traditional theory that came around later, but you have to frame it in terms of theory. You must wed the theory to praxis. You must have a second dimension to your, your, your constitution, your thinking and your activity, or else you're not there. 
same thing, same thing. We could take it all the way back to um, Hegel. Hegel, where he's talking about the difference between Verstand and Vernunft as part of Wissenschaft. So science or knowledge, Wissenschaft, has two components according to great intellectual swindler Hegel. It has understanding at the low level, Verstand, and at the higher level it has Vernunft, which means reason as it gets translated. I would say that it's uh, it's like rational, rational or rationalizing. It, it is, is, in fact, though, it is systemic thinking in his systematic philosophy. When you understand the bigger picture of his systematic philosophy, then you're engaging in the higher level reason that gets attached to those lower level understanding how things go, which we read in Alison Bailey, who I mentioned before, the privilege reserving epistemic pushback. She says that critical thinking, these are the modern terms for these things. There's Verstand, critical thinking, is about epistemic adequacy, knowing what's going on. This is in her paper, Privilege Preserving, Tracking Privilege Preserving Epistemic Pushback in Feminist and Critical Race Philosophy Classrooms from 2017. She says the critical thinking tradition is concerned with epistemic adequacy, knowing what you're talking about, in other words. Evidence, um, soundness of argument, validity of argument, etc., Whereas the critical pedagogy or critical theory-based line of thought is rooted in completely different assumptions that come out of neo-Marxism. This is exact. She says that. I'm not riffing. She says they come from the neo-Marxian tradition or neo-Marxist tradition that is concerned with the effects of power dynamics. And then in the same paragraph, she goes on and says that what you're doing is re-inscribing power when you disagree with them. It's exactly the same thing. We traced it back to Hegel. It probably actually comes back to to Rousseau before Hegel. Hegel borrowed a lot from Rousseau. And Rousseau had a lot of these views that the Enlightenment was too rational, and then we had to find ways to incorporate the emotional and the instinctual. So now we're talking mid-17th century. This is an old line of thinking. This isn't just something that's silly. It's not just Robin DiAngelo, but we can tie it to another paper, Alison Wolf from 2018, where she complains about the so-called reason-emotion divide in philosophy classrooms. Not a hugely impactful paper, not a big famous character, but published in Hypatia, the leading journal of feminist philosophy. And she argues that there's that it's a problem that in philosophy we divide reason and emotion. This is a straight echoing of Rousseau. You know, this is straight echoing of Rousseau. What are we looking at? 270 years later or something? The same stupid ideas. And this is the anatomy of these critical theories. It has a long lineage. It goes way back. This is what they are. This is what they do. This is how stupid they are. Critical car theory. People get hit by cars. People die in car accidents. Cars cause pollution. So therefore, we have to get rid of cars. We have to reorganize our entire system. We have to force everybody to live in tightly packed, knit little cities. We have to rethink and reimagine the system. We have to get away from cars entirely. We have climate change to worry about. Blah, blah, blah. Political football, political football, blah, blah, blah. And everybody's complicit. And if you don't understand how complicit, how you're complicit, you're too stupid to understand sophisticated systemic thinking. You don't understand theory. You are a pleb. That's the whole game. So I hope this has been an enlightening and informative podcast. It went a little longer than I thought it would, so that's exciting. To show you the anatomy of a critical theory, to show you the anatomy of systemic thinking, to show you just how stupid and bad and dangerous and irresponsible and unrealistic and uninformed it is. There's no purpose, I can't say that word on the spot, purposecacity to a critical theory. 
It doesn't know what it's talking about. It doesn't know what it's doing. This is why they had the podcast before. Communism doesn't know how. Buy the shirt. Communism doesn't know how. Why? Because it doesn't bother to understand things. It's done by talentless hacks who can't actually achieve building in anything. So they want to blame somebody, but not just somebody else. It's not just your fault, mom. It's everybody's fault. The whole system is against us. And we can tie that to Heidegger and his flungness. And we can tie that all the way back to the Gnostics before the first century who believed that we were flung into life. What do you think the Prometheus myth is about? We're flung into life. The world is disordered and that's the cause of our unhappiness. And if we just had the special knowledge, say a critical consciousness, if we had the special knowledge, a class consciousness, racial consciousness, feminist consciousness, if we just had the special knowledge, we could figure out how to reorder the world so that our misery would be gone. It's the world that must change, not us. It's not us that must accord with the natural order or the way things are or what is. Those things, the natural order, human nature, reality as it is, the world as it is, all of those things are just they're just narratives and ideologies spun by people who want to maintain their power and privilege. It is the world itself that is wrong. And if we just were to be given the secret knowledge, if we were just given the light of heaven, then we would have that secret knowledge that we would then be able to reorder the world so that we don't suffer. And it's everybody who doesn't want that who's the problem. Everybody who doesn't understand that who is the problem. So then we end up with characters like Lenin who accelerate the contradictions into mass graves because the stupid kulaks aren't on board. They're holding back the revolution. You have Mao destroying the four olds along with hundreds of millions of people. Why? Because they are too stupid to understand the nature of the systemic problem that we face. Modern Gnosticism. That's a critical theory. Critical consciousness is its expression. That's the gnosis. This is not the Gnosticism of if you want to be a hippie or a mystic or whatever you want to be in, be Gnostic in that regard. I don't care what your religion is. This stuff is properly dangerous, however, because it's really, really, really dangerous when your gnosis is how to reorganize all of society so that all the problems will go away and that your belief ultimately comes down to the fact that everybody who's not on board is either too stupid or too evil and therefore needs to be silenced or eventually shot to get them out of the way. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Discourses podcast. Can't wait to talk to you again soon. I think next up we're going to get back to Marcuse and the essay on liberation. 